This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books and Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Raditya from Kyushu University, and today we are joined by uh, three very special guests, Dr. Erika Papali, Dr. Fabio Rambelli, and Dr. Andrea Castiglioni, to discuss their most recent edited volume, the Bloomsbury Handbook of Japanese Religion. Dr. Erika Papali is Professor of Japanese Studies at the University of Manchester. Uh, Dr. Fabio Rambelli is professor at UC Santa Barbara, and Dr. Andrea Castiglioni is a lecturer at Nagoya City University. Uh, before we get into the book, perhaps we can start with a little self-introductions for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work. Uh, Dr. Buffelli, um, do you want to go ahead and start? Sure. Um, hello, everybody. I'm, I'm Erika Buffelli, and I've been working at the University of Manchester since 2013, and my main area of interest is religion in contemporary Japan, in particular a group that developed after the 1970s. So I've been working on the so-called new religions, um, issue about median religion, violence, um, and more recently about Buddhist, on Buddhism and emotions. Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Rambelli, do you want to go next? Yeah, um, with pleasure. So, hello, everyone. This is Fabio Rambelli. I'm a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I work mainly on pre-modern Japanese religion, like medieval and early modern period. Um, I've been doing some work on the semiotics of Buddhism, on idea, on issues of materiality in Buddhism. I've been working on the role of the sea in uh, in pre-modern Japanese religiosity, and and currently I'm working on a project on religion and music special focus on Gagaku. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Castiglioni, um, yeah, please go ahead. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrea Castiglioni. I'm teaching Japanese religions at Nagoya City University. And um, my research field is uh, Shugendo, specifically Edo period Shugendo. I did, um, uh, I made research on Yudono Shugendo, which is a sacred mountains in northern Japan. And recently, I also focused on uh, uh, 
um, the relationship between um, uh, Japanese religion and animality in uh, pre-modern Japan. Great, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think this book is an amazing resource for students and scholars alike. But sort of before we jump into the book, can you perhaps share some of the processes that led to the creation of this book? How did this project begin? Um Fabio, shall I start and then you can pick up? Sure, yeah. I think the conversation started quite a few years ago, um, where Bloomsbury wanted um, this a handbook to to be produced, um, and I think Fabio and I were contacted, or maybe Fabio was contacted first. I, I don't remember exactly, yeah. um, and and we started discussing that it would have been good to have two people working on it with different period of expertise. So Fabio working more on the pre-modern period and I um, uh, and myself working more on the contemporary. And But we also decided from the very beginning that it was a really too big task for two people to do a handbook. Um, and then uh, that we wanted this to be a collaborative uh, project. So to have other people involved, uh, we make Thing more interested, interesting, but also more complicated, of, of, of course. Um, the other thing we wanted to um, discuss from the beginning uh, with, with the publisher was that we didn't want to reproduce a kind of handbook that similar to the very good one that are already available. Uh, so we wanted to do something different that uh, try to look also what is was not yet explored in, in the scholarship. Um, so we wanted to do something that were more similar to a key terms uh, that just um, that just a handbook in, in a sense. Uh, mainly because we thought that what was already available was already good, so there was not really uh, any, any you know, need to replicate something that was already available. Uh, Fabio, did I reported it correctly. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, that is pretty much it. Um, uh, yeah, I think I was contacted first and uh, I thought about it for a while and then I thought that by myself it was impossible. So um, so then, uh, you know, I started talking to uh, with Erica as pretty much, you know, she said. And, and then later we were able to add Andrea also to the project. Um, the idea of having a different type of handbook uh, is pretty much what Erica just said, right? That um, normally handbooks are basically maps of the field as it is now, uh, with some historical background, and but mostly they work on uh, you know established scholarship. So you have Buddhism, Shinto, you have all these you know traditional divisions. We decided to get rid of that. And, and focus instead, uh, like uh, Erica said, pretty much on what uh, authors see, where authors see their field going in the next few years. So it will be a map of possible future research rather than uh, what, what already exists. I mean, that would be the, you know, the contribution of this, of this um, particular handbook that we just put out. I see. Thank you. Um, yeah, so now that we're sort of in a topic of sort of this, uh, sort of having a different sort of handbook, um, I want to sort of talk about the structure of this book, right? And and this is sort of um, a unique aspect of, of sort of this, this specific handbook compared to some of the other ones. 
in, in the sense that they are um, sort of a collection of short essays instead of, you know, your, your typical sort of chapters. So I was wondering if you could tell us some of the reasons instead of choosing this particular structure instead of, you know, your, your sort of the typical um, sort of longer chapters that you'd find in, in other handbooks. Um, what are sort of sort of the useful things that you can do with sort of, you know, short essays and, and what are some of the difficulties that you might find in sort of choosing this particular structure? So the idea, again, Traditional handbooks are geared, uh, are you know, directed mostly towards graduate students and uh, and uh, professors in the field and scholars. And uh, so we decided to um, uh, try to expand the audience. And uh, by writing shorter essays on specific topics, we were hoping that we would give uh, suggestions to undergraduates as well who are interested in uh, in Japanese religions but uh, they can find um, a whole lot of um, topics that are available out there and um, and also that would intersect with uh, other aspects of the humanities. So that was the main idea behind behind the, the structure of the of the handbook. The other thing is that you know there are a lot of topics that need to be covered rather than like larger entries on specific religious traditions and their articulations. So we decided to fragment the, the handbook in this way. Uh, Eric and Andrea perhaps? Uh, yes, that was um, there were some practical reasons as, as Fabio said that with having shorter, focus chapter we could fit more topic uh, in the handbook uh, but the idea was also as as he was saying to provide some hints some ideas um, about some of the topics that then uh, undergraduate or postgraduate or even researcher can start it having an idea of what's going on in a specific field and then uh, move forward so it was the, the idea to provide some sort of um, initial preliminary uh, overview and and also indication of possible avenue for further studies in in this short in this short chapter and we thought the shorter chapter worked better uh, for 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 this kind of a project we had in mind. Andrea, do you want to add anything to this? Yes, and also it seems to me that in each chapter um, we try to emphasize um, a strong uh, uh, theoretical or methodological aspect in order to have the the level of the discourse to be disentangled with the specificities of the of the field, and in order to be able to speak to a larger audience of. Of course, of people related, uh, um, of researchers focused on Japanese religions, but also a broader audience of people who are not necessarily working on Japanese religions, but can use certain uh, themes that we analyze in the chapters for their field, for their researches. And it seems to me we also kept in mind this aspect. Great. Thank you. Um... So now that we're sort of in the, in the sort of topic of the, the terms and the concepts that I do feel like are really sort of central to this book, you know, some of the sort of words in there, you know, like sound, um, globalization, law, you know, these are things that you wouldn't necessarily directly relate to sort of religion at first glance. Um, can you sort of share how these group of terms um, sort of was decided, sort of whether you leave the selection to the contributors 
or is this sort of something that is predetermined um, from the start? Um, this has been um, this has evolved with the project, as as you can imagine, a project of of this size uh, is is more complicated than than you look at the beginning. And and we started with uh, a structure that Fabio and I came up with with a list of um, terms that we wanted to include and entries that we wanted to include related to some areas that we thought were uh, developing and emerging and they, they were quite interesting of including. And then we added a new one through suggestion from the author. And then when Andrea came on board, he brought his suggestion too. And so the project evolved in, in this. And it's also important to probably note that there were other uh, entries that at the end we were not able to include, um, mainly because we couldn't find uh, people that uh, could write about those topics. So we, we realized that it's probably um, one of the areas that still need a little bit more development. So I, I think we had initially some of the um, terms that we really wanted to include and then some other that uh, evolve in discussion with the author. But also in, in when the handbook started shaping up, we realized that it would be good to have some other entries and then we contacted extra author later on uh, in the process, asking them to, to write on, on specific uh, topics. Um, so I think, Fabio, Andrea, do you want to add anything on this? Um, yeah, no, that's pretty much it. Um, it. It was a complicated process because, you know, yeah, identifying the topics. And again, we were looking at topics that we thought were understudied or could be studied in a different way or had some promise. We were also thinking about specific authors that we wanted to include. And um, and again, we tried not to contact all the luminaries, but uh, to contact a lot of emerging scholars. We contacted a lot of Japanese scholars who normally are not part of this kind of projects because, you know, um, they're more normally uh, written by English-speaking um, scholars. So, so we did, uh, you know, we played on different tables, you know, trying to put it together. And like Erica said, some entries we were not able to include, you know, like uh, religion and sports, for example. And I think we have a short list in the introduction, you know, of some topics that you know could be included in a future in a future handbook. So, but it was it was a lot of work. Andrea, yes, yes. No, like like uh, Erica and Father have already said, um, it was, uh, in my opinion, the the the, the overall is a complete uh, uh, selection. Uh, although, of course, we had to to leave something out because uh, we couldn't find people who could cover this topic. But the overall uh, contributors that participated to the, to the handbook, if you, if you look at, at, the, at the names and the, um, the um, identities of, uh, of, of the contributors, you can see it's a nice uh, mix of uh, um, uh, Euro-American scholars, uh, um, uh, Asian scholars working together, and this is not uh, a, a, a such a common phenomenon when in in previous uh, uh, guides or handbooks on Japanese religions, when you have I don't know a priority a majority of uh, Japanese scholars, and then you have a different book and only Europeans or Americans without without uh, um, Asian scholars. But we we try to to um, uh, have a, a diversity 
in the um, in the, in the in the uh, composition of the contributors of uh, our uh, handbook. Yeah, I think it's important to stress at, at this point at this point that we couldn't do this project without the contributors. So I, I think each yeah. of them brought in their expertise and and produced these very interesting entries that the three of us wouldn't be able to do. So I think it's it's really important that we stress that this was really a collaborative endeavor and, and a project that was shaped also by the contributors themselves. Absolutely, yeah. I don't think you can find um, as many sort of handbooks with sort of, you know, this many contributors and sort of these many different um, uh, sort of ideas and sort of themes. Um, so um, I've noticed that there are several um, overlaps between some of the themes. Um, for example, Yanis uh, Gaitani's and sort of Hori Norichika's sort of sections on spirituality um, and sort of Lindsay DeWitt and Yamanaka Hiroshi's sort of contributions on sort of cultural heritage. And I know that these are sort of very different um, sort of Sort of topics and, and they're looking at it from sort of different perspectives. But I was wondering if sort of these overlaps um, reflect perhaps a growing interest in sort of these topics or sort of whether this is a way to sort of stress the importance of these particular topics. I think both. Uh, there is a growing interest in those topics and, um, and, um, and we were trying also to show that different articulation of those, uh, the different approaches to those, uh, to those topics. So that's why there is some, um, I mean, the, the overlap is mostly in the title, by the way, because again, if you, when, when, uh, when you read the entries, you see that they're really going in different directions. But, uh, but it's an attempt to, to highlight these uh, intersections between Japanese religions and broader issues like, you know, spirituality or esotericism or, uh, um, a cultural heritage, as you suggested, that are you know normally not really or not directly related or not directly studied within religious studies of Japan until now. Yeah, you you have also to put this. I mean, all this in context, right? When we study Japanese religions, at least in most places, you know, it's either Buddhism or more, you know, very rarely Shinto, and then you have some new religions. Some people may do something on Christianity, but it's mostly Buddhism from Buddhist texts. In this handbook, there's very little of that. <laughs> so, of course, spirituality is a very important phenomenon in Japan, but very few people you know, address it in, in, in a systematic way. So that's why we brought in several entries that you know, would highlight the importance um, of this aspect for the study of the religiosity of Japan, not necessarily of established religious organizations. So that's why you know, there are these kind of cluster, you know, thematic clusters here and there in the in the book. The other one is uh, aspects of sensoriality, for example. So you have sound, visuality, and all that. Um, cultural heritage is another is another emerging field that uh, is very relevant for the study of religion, uh, especially in the modern time. So so yeah, we were trying. So like I said, we we're trying to play on different tables, <laughs> both with the topics, but also uh, related to the current structure of academia and the structure of curricula for Japanese uh, for the study of Japanese religions, and kind of scramble, you know, the the codes, uh, so that we could promote new ideas and new approaches. Certainly, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So sort of going back, sort of this idea of contributing something new to sort of our understanding of Japanese religions. Um, I know that this is going to be a pretty difficult question, but uh, let's say, you know, sort of maybe one of our listeners have 
no idea, have, you know, have never heard about sort of Japanese religions. Uh, what are some of the ways that we can think about uh, Japanese religions without sort of limiting ourselves to, you know, Buddhism or Shinto or sort of any other religious institutions? Well, I, I think one one good point uh, with which we can start is, uh, first of all, to emphasize um, the fractures uh, instead of continuity. Um, I think we 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 analyze this aspect a little bit also in the in the introduction. So uh, usually uh, the, the 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 standard narrative about Japanese religion is this never-ending, uh, perfect line proceeding uh, without fractures, without breaks from the from the past to the present. But if you actually look at it, it's full of gaps is full of uh, of uh, ruptures and uh, and uh, in in the recent time i think uh, we said the, this crisis this breaks in the discourse happened at least uh, three times we had the uh, 1995 uh, uh, sarin attack on the underground uh, that was a big turn and then we have uh, the um, uh, Eastern Japan uh, great earthquake of uh, in uh, 2011, uh, March uh, 11th. And that was the second turn. And then now, for example, with the with the COVID-19, this might be the third big turn. So the, the third big fracture in the discourse and all uh, new religions as well as uh, old religions reacted to this uh, changes and and adjust themselves. So, for example, if if we if we if we look at this um, at, at, at these uh, ruptures, at this uh, fragmentation, at, at these gaps in the discourse, is a good trigger to deactivate uh, certain mm, common uh, rhetoric about uh, the nostalgia of the past that we always that they often found in the usual way to represent uh, uh, Japanese religions. Yeah, I, I agree with Andrea. That is an um, excellent way to, to look at this. Um, another a point that I usually stress as being also someone working on the contemporary is to to look at how religion is done. Non, not necessarily how what religion is. So starting about looking at how religion is done in in Japan, um, and and this I think is what a lot of of these entries also discuss. And then goes back also to your comment before about some of this topic not looking apparently related with religion, but if you start looking at how religion is done they are fundamentally part of, of religion. Religious practice is always political. Um, religion is economic. Um, so that looking at that is, is, is a, I think, another very good way to start uh, looking at and maybe understanding uh, or at least trying to understand religion in contemporary Japan or, or in Japan in general. And I think this can be applied to the pre-modern period as well when, when you work on text. Right, Fabio. Mm. Yes, uh, no, that's what I w- was going to say. That uh, y- your considerations, both Andreas and yours, you know, can be a- applied to uh, to uh, the pre-modern period as well. So religion is done, or religiosity, you know, is manifested in specific ways, and uh, in the ways in which mani- religion manifests or is done, 
manifests itself or is done, uh, there's very little space for like academic distinctions of sect, of lineage, of texts, and all that. So um, I think it's very important to emphasize the, the situation on the field. And that would be, I think, um, the best approach to introduce students to the study of Japanese religion. I mean, see how it is done, how it, how it looks like when you are in Japan. And then perhaps you may want to explore specific aspects, right? Why is this temple different from the other one? Why do, you know, why do these people do things in a certain way and these other, these other groups do it in a different way? And then you can introduce issues of, you know, kind of historical lineages or continuities and so forth. This discontinuity and rupture, like Andrea said, are also very important in the, in the pre-modern periods. Of course, when you have these schismatic movements, you have these mm-hmm. reform movements, you have mm-hmm. rebellions and, and, and changes in doctrines and ways of thinking and practicing. So all of these, I think it's, it's, it's important. So maybe that's why, um, rather than a systematic like history of Shinto or history of Buddhism, perhaps um, having moments uh, in which describing moments in which religion is done, takes place, is constituted on the ground, uh, would be a better way and more like inclusive way to describe, uh, to understand uh, the situation. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, my, my sort of my own views have certainly changed sort of before um, sort of coming to Japan and, and sort of after um, sort of you know being here in Japan, sort of observing um, sort of Japanese religions on the ground. So um, for, you know, sort of the students and sort of the sort of um, young scholars out there who are just sort of getting into doing research in Japanese religion, what are some of the sort of topics that are not sort of um, covered in this volume, but you also think um, sort of, you know, topics that are also important to sort of um, pursue um, directions that um, people should sort of take that are sort of not perhaps, you know, maybe there's not enough space to sort of cover that in this volume. Mm. Well, if I can start, you know, just a few things that come to mind. One is cultural heritage, for example, which is mentioned in one entry. Maybe a couple of others make reference to it, but, you know, this can be expanded in so many different ways. And cultural heritage, you know, we tend to think of it as a very modern, very contemporary way of looking at the past. But a certain idea of cultural heritage has always been present. So when you see, like in the Edo period, when they go back to the Heian period, and try to reconstruct certain cultural practices. I mean, there was a certain idea of a cultural heritage that had to be preserved. So this goes, you know, this kind of permeates the entire history of Japanese culture in general and religion in particular. Um, another aspect that is understudied is the sensorium, you know, the, the, the role of food, the role of uh, sound, smell, uh, and all of this kind of bodily, uh, direct bodily interactions with, uh, with the sacred. Uh, again, we have a couple of entries there, but of course, you know, this is such a vast field that, that needs to be, uh, I mean, can be expanded in, in many, many directions. Uh, tourism is also another thing that uh, seems to be uh, unrelated to religion, but in fact it is because you need to bring pilgrims, you need to bring people to the temple. So something that is very fascinating to me is the role of railways or public transportation, Um uh, for the for the development of religious sites, and of course in the modern time that is crucial, but also in pre-modern times, you know, temples needed access routes, right? So they needed roads, they needed uh, um, ways to get there, and uh, and that I think has not been studied in depth, as far as I know. I mean, this connection between um, the temples and their their own access. 
the other another aspect which I think is very very important also is the environmental impact of religious institutions. Like when you have Mount Ye with like I don't know ten thousand people living there on the mountain, what was the impact on the environment? You know, what did they do? What did they do with trash, for example? How did they procure food? You know, what what were the channels of logistics that that enabled this mountain um, to to not only to survive but prosper as well? So these are all implications that you know they go beyond religion but involve you know, economics. Uh, again, transportation, <laughs> logistics, and, and and all that. But that's, uh, I think, an important way to understand how religion could be created and maintained in in, in Japan. Um, yeah, we we listed some of the possible topic for further research at the end of our uh, in our introduction, and some of the topic that uh, Fabio mentioned. And I just want to mention a couple of other that um, he mentioned. Uh, sensorial experience, but I, I, I think the emotional one as well. So aesthetics in yes. the broader sense um, is something that needs to be explored more. Another point that we made is the idea of a religion in the periphery. So a lot of study tend also when, when we look at the contemporary to be focused on the main center, uh, Kyoto Nara region or, or in, in the contemporary Tokyo, so the main urban center, but a lot can be done also more in, in the periphery. Um, and the other point was the environmental aspect that uh, the Fabio mentioned, but also the relationship with non-human um, uh, beings, so like uh, animals, for example, that there has been some study done, but I think there is one of the area that a lot more uh, could be done. And of course, the technology is, is, is one of the area that is continuously evolving because evolving with, with the new technology. So there, there is a continuous in an area that um, is continually changing and, and, and new challenges appear uh, through, through that also in terms of memorialization uh, of ancestor, etc. Uh, Andrea, do you have any other of, of the new areas? Yeah, new areas. Even for me, uh, the, we mentioned in the introduction of uh, geospatiality of religion. Uh, there is a there is a tendency to emphasize uh, the uh, the uh, um, landscape of the mountains, the, the landscape of the rice field in connection with Japanese religions. But what what about the sea? Fabio uh, has done work uh, in that direction, but but there is there is more. And, and going and, and going back to uh, what uh, you were saying, Erika, also uh, physicality, body, uh, and, and animality. Um, if we embrace, for example, uh, the sea, but in this case also also the mountains, uh, what, what is the, the relationship between the, the animals of the sea, the animals of the mountain, and the production of uh, religious uh, uh, discourses in pre-modern or modern Japan? Um, and also another another thing that we mentioned in the introduction is the multilingual uh, uh, aspects uh, of Japanese religions. Uh, um, for example, in 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 in, in the researches connected with, um, uh, with with Japanese Buddhism, there is an emphasis on, for example, uh, classical Chinese. But Japanese Buddhism was uh, and is based not only on classical Chinese, but also uh, on on Sanskrit letters. For example, uh, on on also on. Um, uh, 
j- uh, Japanese uh, um, uh, written composition, like uh, like the ritual use uh, of the of the waka or the poems. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a mixed. Uh, uh, language uh, um, w- with them, which uh, th- that are bringing together uh, different uh, mm, uh, sensibilities coming from within Japan as well as from outside Japan. Um, so these these are fields that can be explored more um, probably in the future future years. Yeah, if I may add just uh, just something by by you know by way of footnote is that you know some of these fields that we have been discussing here had already been approached like 50, 60, 70 years ago. I'm thinking about aesthetics, for example, you know, but the way in which aesthetics was approached in the past was that you know oh uh, the aristocracy likes these elaborate. Um, lavish uh, rituals, you know, that have nothing to do with the people and the true authentic expression of religiosity. So that was a way to get rid of all that. And for decades, nobody ever approached it because the topic itself had been so compromised by this particular approach. So it is really important to to also to think about uh, how past scholars have addressed some of these particular issues and, and come to them from a very different angle. So, like the role of the body, for example, or you know, whatever what we have the, what we have been discussing here. So, what I'm saying is that some of these topics have already been studied, but in a very, let's say, partial or slanted or mm. kind of denigratory way. That mm. also needs to be to be. You know, we have to be aware of that and overcome that, and you know, looking for new explanations and new a new meaning. Definitely, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so in, instead of the introduction, there is a short section on COVID-19, and I was sort of wondering if um, you could share some of your thoughts on sort of how the pandemic have, or if it could change the way we think about religions or how we study them. Uh, if I can start, where of, of, as, as someone working on, on a contemporary issue, it's always very difficult to... Uh, discuss something or to make uh, comments or something that is happening. Um, so I, I think we will need a few years to, to judge the, the impact uh, of, of the pandemic on, on practice. Um, and, and of course, we have a lot of experience in uh, a lot of examples through history of, of religion bouncing back uh, from pandemic and disaster and, and crisis. So this is uh, by no means uh, a unique uh, event. Um, but we, we wanted to add these kind of comments at the end of the introduction because it was impossible not to comment on it. When, when we were finishing the handbook, the pandemic, we, we were on lockdown, the, the pandemic has, has just started. And what we noticed was, of course, uh, already changes in, in, um, in the practice in the immediate, so how uh, groups reacted to the impossibility of meeting uh, in person and and comparing to other recent disasters, as the triple disaster in 2011, the main difference was that uh, the volunteers couldn't be employed, that the the people couldn't meet, which is in person, which was an important aspect uh, of of religious practice. So uh, different groups came up with different ideas to maintain 
contact with the members or to make the rituals available. And, and it's a different innovative, uh, but it's also important to remember that some didn't at all uh, because they, they weren't prepared for, for doing it. So there's been a very different degrees of, of uh, innovation that we're seeing with the pandemic. Another aspect I was particularly interested in is, is how the pandemic had um, impacted deprived group in, 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 in Japanese society and, 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 and the religion organization working with them, so how they could um, help people where they, they had to protect them and their own volunteers. So this has been one of the areas I've been, I've been quite interested in, uh, together with the economic impact on temples of, of, of the pandemic. That has been quite, quite significant. Um, so those aspects, I think we will need a little bit more time to fully understand uh, the impact. Uh, but it's, it's quite interesting to see uh, the, the different reaction and, and also the, the different uh, response to, to the pandemic. Um, I, I think Fabio and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure Fabio and Andrea have other comments on, on this. Yeah, Fabio, should I go for first? And yeah, then... yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. Just, just an idea. For example, uh, um, the impact of COVID nineteen on Kagura performances. Um, most of them were performed the same during the during the pandemic, but they uh, were just uh, performed by the um, uh, uh, by the specialists without uh, uh, the audience, but. After the performance, or the, during the performance uh, of, of, of the Kagura, of the, of the sacred dances uh, for the Kami, the, the, the performance was recorded and very often it was put on, uh, on, uh, on YouTube to be watched by, 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 pe- by the people after the event. This uh, had, for example, a strong impact on the fact that certain Kagura, not all the Kagura, but certain Kagura also have a, a, a secret part, so also are strongly related with secrecy. So, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> if something is supposed to be secret and then you upload it on YouTube in a, on a low open link, then the, 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 we'll say the emphasis on the, on the secrecy uh, fade away and you have a different kind of reframing of the uh, um, religious performance of, of, the, of the Kagura. So, uh, uh, th- there's an there's an impact, and it will be as, as Erika was saying. It will be interesting to see how after the COVID nineteen uh, these uh, changes uh, will remain, or or will uh, will go away, or or, or new phenomenon will will appear. It, it will be nice to to research on the um, on 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 the on the impact of the COVID-19 on, on the long durée of this, um, of this kind of, uh, uh, of religious phenomena like Kagura and so on, or, or virtu- virtual talismans uh, made by the temples and so on. Just to continue with what Andrea just said, um, uh, so this year in April, um, I was watching on YouTube the live streaming of Shoryoe at Shitennoji. You know, Shoryoe is mm. one of the oldest mm. uh, ceremonies uh, ever performed in Japan, you know, dedicated to Shotoku Taishi. And so the temple decided not to have a live audience, but to perform the, the, the Bugaku ritual. 
and so it's, it was live on YouTube. Um, so normally, uh, the, the, the space of Shitenoji is full when this performance takes place live. So I was expecting like uh, thousands of thousands of people, you know, watching on YouTube. Um, I think there were like 200 of us or 300. It was like a tiny amount. So, and that was kind of counterintuitive to me because I thought, well, being online, everybody can watch it. A lot of people would watch it and they didn't. So, uh, so this brings up, um, f- first of all, the actual uh, relevance of social media and the digital technologies uh, for religion. And the second one is that uh, if people don't care that much, you know, what is going to happen to these rituals in, in the future? If it's only like a small group of people who do them and the others don't really care unless it's a special social event that involves other aspects, you know, like uh, the Shoryo is not just for the Bugaku, obviously, you know, there are a lot of components that are part of it together with the Kagura, right? It's the, the whole Matsuri, the whole thing that makes sense. So, uh, so these are all considerations that, you know, came up, uh, but uh, of course we don't have an answer now. Something that was uh, interesting to me uh, during the lockdown in particular is really I think we even wrote it at the, you know, on the introduction, it's really the you know thinking about the end, the end of times because this is what religion has always been doing in a way or another uh, they all, you know, religion also serves to reinforce the present, you know but, but there's always this component you know, thinking about what happens death, you know, with the end, you know individual death or or, or cosmic death and um, um, I've seen that in um, disasters movies during this time, that many of them have increased and present a very bleak uh, image of the future. I haven't seen that uh, dealt much in terms of religion, religious organizations, but I wonder if, uh, you know, it is, I, I wonder if this could be a possible development uh, within the religious discourse, uh, also in terms of like climate change, uh, you know, huge transformations that we are facing and all the dangers that we are facing, you know, for the next couple of generations, if uh, religious organizations will also begin to address um, uh, earnestly, you know, the, the topic of, uh, of the end of times. If I can briefly add to, to what Fabio Andrea was saying, I think that, um, you know, the beginning we had this... Um, frenzies of, of in, in a sense, wanting to go online and to make everything available. Um, and, and you know, there was kind of a kind of also, uh, it not not just in for the religion organization, but also in our personal life uh, to try to be connected in any way. Uh, quite a kind of excitement. And then we went into the Zoom burnout where we, mm-hmm. you know, less and less people actually participate to, to this online event. And also because in different parts of the world, we are different stage in the pandemic. So uh, that also, we, we are shared experience, but it's actually not in the same, not exactly in the same way. So it will be interesting that like Andrea would see and would say to see the, in the long-term impact uh, about uh, if this technology were just useful for a brief amount of moment or it, some of them will stay. Or and but I, I want to reiterate also that what is also implied of it is economic impact, because if you move your ritual online and you don't have people coming to the temple, it will have a 
potentially of kind of significant economic impact uh, on your revenue. And this is something that, you know, it, it has to be taken into consideration and, and will impact on, on the long-term availability of, of these online free uh, performances. So these are also aspects that um, we are going to see more um, in, 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 in this other phase of, of the pandemic, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, these these are sort of fascinating examples. Um, I guess in the end, it's sort of up to us uh, researchers to just sort of keep an eye on sort of these changes and these developments. But um, yeah, well, we've taken much of your time today. So before we sort of say goodbye, there is one final question. Um, can you tell me what projects you're currently working at? Um, something. I'm working again on something on uh, on marine uh, uh, hybrid creatures uh, something on uh, Ningyo Amabie Amabie is uh, is also a, a, a marine uh, creature that we mentioned in the introduction that was used as a talisman against COVID-19 uh, last year and even this year apparently the flame is going on a little so I'm working on that at this moment and my standard topic uh, you don't know Shugendo and the cult of that mountain, the Edo people. Fabio, it's your oh, okay. turn. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mentioned that at the introduction. I'm working on the intersection of uh, uh, religion and music with special focus on Gagaku. Um, I see that as a continuation of my work on materiality because, uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, ritual implements, musical instruments. But, uh, of course, there is an immaterial component, which is sound, uh, which, again, is part of the sensorium uh, of uh, religion. Uh, uh, Gagaku is normally not understood in religious terms, but it was an important part. It's been, for, for many centuries, actually, an important part of the most important religious ceremonies, both in Shinto shrines and at Buddhist temples, in addition to the uh, imperial court. So I'm trying to explore... Um, this, this kind of complex uh, phenomenon beyond, you know, musicology, more the kind of social history of, uh, of the role of sound. Uh, and so basically the soundscape of, of, uh, of, of Japanese religion. Um, and I just con- um, finished a project on aesthetics and emotion of religious belonging. Uh, there is a coming up special issue for Newman, and we look at oh. example on uh, from the Buddhist world, uh, not just from Japan, but from uh, other uh, East Asian contexts as well. And I'm now working on a project with two colleagues in Bergen in Norway on a minority and, and religion that is also part of a project uh, with um, uh, Professor Takashi at, at the uh, Toyo University, uh, which look, so we are working on a special issue uh, with, with him on um, minority and religious minorities in, in Japan. And the project with uh, colleagues in Bergen is going to be an open access a database uh, um, with with different articles on on uh, minority and religions. So these are two the two main projects I'm I'm working on. Um, and at the moment, I'm mainly hoping to be able to go to Japan soon <laughs> to to do the, some proper field work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, um, I, I certainly look forward to sort of, um, you know, keeping up to date with sort of these projects and, and maybe we can sort of, um, you know, uh, see each other again in the future. Thank you.